Over the last few weeks, as we've been looking into Acts, we've been seeing the flip side to a spirit-filled church growing under the Lord's blessing. Luke, the author, has been very deliberately showing us that as God pours out his spirit and works miracles and changes lives, there is still a backlash. There's a backlash because the gospel provokes opposition from those who are heavily invested in life without it. We've seen that in the authorities' rejection of the apostles, and that comes to a head next week in chapter 7 as we look at what happens to Stephen. But it's not just human opposition. At the beginning of chapter 5, we see potentially destructive and blatant and shameless sin in the church. And Peter lays that at the feet of Satan in 5 verse 3. Now, some of the details might be sketchy, but the Bible is dead clear. There is a devil. We have an enemy. And he hates us with an intensity that I doubt we can really grasp. He's like a roaring lion, we're told, prowling up and down. He would gladly devour us. But unlike a lion, he's subtle and cunning. And so after a really quite forthright attack on Ananias and Sapphira, in our passage tonight, there's a a more cunning, pernicious, double-pronged assault. Crucially, though, throughout Acts, Luke is writing with utter confidence. God is sovereign not just in the long term, but now, immediately. So not only do we have the long-term promise of heaven and total security in his name, but also right now, God's sovereignty is evident. And so, again and again, through these chapters which detail persecution and opposition, there is rapid church growth and there are abundant blessings poured out. That's really clearer in Acts than here in this passage. And we get verse 7. It's one of the turning points of the book. So the word of God spread. And that's our focus tonight. How does the word of God spread in church? Unusually for me, I'm going to have a very simple, clear structure. Two dangers and then a solution. The antidote. So danger number one. Disunity is dangerous. In the way Luke tells this story, I think there are several parallels to the Old Testament book of Exodus. Here we've got God working out the time of resurrection. He's reaching out with his message of new life, with the gospel, and he's forging a people for himself in the church. He's setting them free from slavery and from bondage to sin. It's just like the old Exodus. As Christians, we'd argue that Exodus from Egypt was a sort of picture of this, an imperfect prelude. And just as the features of that original Exodus defined the identity and customs and characteristics of the Jewish people, the events here set out patterns and warnings for us. To my mind, one of the most prominent features of the Exodus is the people's reaction to it. As you read through that book, again and again you see grumbling and murmuring amongst Israel. They grumble at each other, at Moses and at God. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? We were fine there. And it provokes his judgment. And so in a really depressing way, you can see right from the start of that story, there is something flawed in Exodus. 
You get God's amazing plan, but right away it's clear that Israel's hearts are not fit for the purpose. They're not clean. And so ultimately, you read the Exodus book and you can sense that they're not going to end up happy. They're not going to be safe in God's blessings. They grumble and murmur against their God. They reject his ways and he lets them go. They lose out and they draw down judgment on themselves. The Israelites found out Grumbling and disunity are dangerous. They don't fit with God's character. And so this time that there's an exodus, Israel's hearts begin to follow the same pattern and it needs a quick remedy. In verse 1, there is a murmuring in the church. It's translated here as they complained against each other, but it's the same verb that they used to translate the exodus language. As Israel had grumbled against Moses and so divided themselves, here the early church begins to grumble with potentially disastrous consequences. Now, they seem to have a valid complaint. Luke seems to indicate that something was wrong. Whether it was through deliberate injustice or through an oversight, we don't know. But there must have been a a serious enough potential problem that the apostles needed to make a unified response and that Luke felt the need to record it for posterity. What's the problem? In verse 1, we get these two factions emerging. One's giving themselves preferential treatment and the other's grumbling against them. Not surprisingly, the factions seem to divide along pre-existing cultural lines. There's the Hebraic Jews who held on to traditional Jewish culture And then the Hellenistic Jews, who followed the Jewish religion, but adopted the more international Greek culture. But New Testament teaching is dead clear. All believers together make up the body of Christ. All are united in Jesus. All depend on and from him. No separation belongs. No internal grumbling, no preferential treatment. And throughout the New Testament, in Galatians or Corinthians or Ephesians, it's a major theme. This is our first glimpse of one of the big issues faced by the early church. Why is it such a big deal? Well, two obvious reasons. One, the church's purpose is to witness to new life, to reflect Christ's character. And it doesn't look like this, grumbling against each other. And secondly, this has the potential to neutralise the gospel. When we find lines to draw between different parts of Christ's body, it doesn't take us long to conclude that the other guys, they're not saved at all. And so we foolishly limit the universal offer of salvation in Christ. Uh, We add extra conditions and rules, and pretty rapidly those become more important than knowing grace. Here, mentally, we can follow this division through. What's likely to happen? If there's a split at this stage between the Jewish Jews and the Greekish Jews, then soon there'll be two early churches disagreeing with each other. Most likely, the Jewish one will turn more and more back towards the old religion until it ends up indistinguishable from it. The gospel and grace would be overshadowed And the need for transformation of hearts would be hidden under rigid laws. We see hints of that happening in the New Testament at points. 
Meanwhile, the Greekish ones would tend towards a more and more Hellenistic culture until they were just another Greek or Roman cult, open to all Gentiles, fitting in with their ways, but with the holiness and purity of God's people undermined, compromised. And the heart-transforming power of this new life choked by worldly habits. If there's disunity... Where would people then look to see Christ's new life? Disunity is dangerous. It threatens the day-to-day working of this church, but more importantly, it, it undercuts their core characteristic. To be a believer is to be united in Christ with all other believers. And that's at the heart of our purpose and our value as witnesses. Disunity is dangerous. Secondly, distraction is dangerous. Look at verse 2 and the dilemma for the apostles. They've got this potentially catastrophic threat, but they can't deal with it unless they neglect their other duties. And that would be equally disastrous. Without clear teaching, without faithful intercession, this church will fall apart at the seams. And there just aren't enough hours in the day for them to do both tasks. It's another Exodus parallel, by the way. In Exodus 18, Moses has to appoint several other people to help govern Israel because it's pointed out to him. Otherwise, he'll wear himself out. He'll be no use to anyone. Now, the, the model of a one-man band church with a pastor slash leader slash teacher slash children's worker slash counsellor, event organiser, accountant, office manager, Dan Steele, prayer leader, uh, and then, then a congregation of receivers. It just doesn't work, does it, Dan? It doesn't. He shakes his head, yeah. Uh, it, it doesn't fit. One person can't do it all. Something has to give. They'll fail in some areas, or probably all. And then other things go wrong. Murmuring will begin against them, or the church won't witness well to the message of resurrection. So the apostles have to say in verse 2, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word to wait on tables. We can't do both. The, the NIV here, it, it sounds almost a little bit contemptuous. Wh- which sounds more attractive to you? The ministry of the word or, or waiting on tables? Um, actually, the same language is used in verse 2 and verse 4. And, and both are acts of service. They're just of different flavours. The apostles have been granted this remarkable, miraculous gift for teaching and prayer and evangelism. If they neglect that duty and prioritise other things which are important too, the church will run into trouble. Now what they need is for other people who are equally gifted, but in different ways, to take care of different ministries. Again, this is a picture which gets built up throughout the New Testament. It's one of the big issues. Paul talks about a body of Christ consisting of different parts with different functions, but all crucial to serving each other. That's the shape of the church. That's how it grows. Two quick points then about these different ministries, the the word ministry and the table ministry. One I've touched on already. Nothing in the language here indicates a superiority. They're both crucial. 
Without the word ministry and prayer, the church is not going to grow correctly. It won't reach maturity. It will be prey to all kinds of attack. Without the table ministry, the people will dissolve into factions or or just be ineffectual and disorganised. Both are needed. Secondly, they're not exclusive. So up until this point, the apostles have probably been doing both, but the church has outgrown their capabilities. And then we've got Stephen and Philip, are two of the guys selected here for practical service, but in the next two stories in Acts, it's about them doing very word kind of things. It's not that there were different tiers, but let people serve according to their gifts. Distraction is dangerous. We, we can't expect our leaders to do everything for us. They don't have the time. They may not have the gifts. So let them prioritise their essential roles. Let others serve where it's needed. Two dangers for us then. Disunity and distraction. What's the solution as Luke shows it? How does God's church grow? I think the antidote is here. It, 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 it's for wise, spirit-filled believers to serve according to their gifts. Look at verses 2 to 6. The apostles say, Choose some men from among you who are full of the Spirit and wisdom. They can take care of this task. So the church picks out these seven guys. We get Greek names given for them, but they probably come from a range of different backgrounds. There's even one of Gentile origin. And yet, they all get included in the Spirit's anointing and in shared service with the apostles. This isn't a church which will just be led from the front. All of a sudden, the whole body is involved in selecting a range of people to serve in different ways, with different backgrounds and different skills. And now that that's happened, now that faithful ministry is being taken on by many, not just the leaders, now that mantle of imitating Jesus has spread from Peter and the apostles to the whole church, Now we get verse 7. So the word of God spread. Even to the extent of many priests getting involved, presumably Sadducees and Pharisees, who up till now have been steadfast opponents. Disunity and distraction threatened the church briefly. But the remedy, the the powerful game-changing influence, is wise, spiritful believers serving according to their gifts. So as for the two dangers, let me put a couple of sub-points to that. Did you notice what the apostles didn't say? They don't say, guys, pick out a few of you who are really good at organising stuff, maybe some completer finishers, turn the task over to them. God in his goodness provides the church with people with a range of talents and skills, but The criterion the church uses here isn't, are these guys good at the job? I think we can assume they considered that, that they wouldn't have picked a disorganised Muppet for the task. But the key qualification, are these blokes wise and spirit-filled? Is that weird? Why do you need to be godly and holy just to wait on tables? Let me suggest two reasons. Firstly, I think it's because they will be under attack. Satan is real. 
He's already taking shots at this church. He's trying to undermine them. He would love to get them. If he can corrupt or hurt or slow these people down, he will. They need to be holy so that they're not easy targets for temptation. A scandal with one of them could rock people's faith. It could destroy the church. They need to be wise so that they can identify and see through Satan's manoeuvring. And if we select servants and leaders in our church who don't have a godly character, we're going to be setting them up for a fall. Do we think like that? When we take on a role in church, do we prepare for increased attack by the evil one? I think we should. Do we pray for ourselves and for those at work in our church? Do we ask God's protection on them and and for them to have the wisdom and the spirit? I think we should. More of that later. Second reason they need to be wise and spirit-filled, holy characters. Presumably it's also because this is the shape of Christ's blessing and plan for his people. And so, insofar as all Christians should hope to be wise and spirit-filled and growing in holiness with changed hearts, so people who serve the church, that is, all Christians, need to be wise and spirit-filled. Believers are called to love one another. And how do we know what love is? We, we see it as Christ willingly dies on the cross. The pattern of blessing and new life that he lays out for his disciples is willing, holy, changed hearts, self-sacrificially serving each other. That's what it means to follow our master. If you just quickly glance through the second half of Acts 6, you see that played out in Stephen. I think he's there in part as a case study, an extreme example of faithful discipleship. So verse 8, he is full of God's grace and power, like Jesus. Verse 9, opposition arises, like with Jesus. Verse 10, they can't stand against the Spirit's wisdom. So 11 to 14, they lay false accusations against him as they did with Jesus. In verse 15, he's transformed into an image of holiness, of of Jesus. Chapter 7, he dies very much like Jesus. It's a hard path, but it's glorious. And it's the blessing that Christ has laid out for his followers. Wisdom and holiness and faithful service of God's people, are inextricably intertwined. They're parts of the same thing. I'm nearly finished, but just before we do have a time of singing and then some prayer, I've got three sets of questions that I think we should be asking ourselves. Um, They're quite hard, sorry. One, disunity is dangerous. So how do I relate to God's church? Are there portions of it that I discriminate against? Maybe not deliberately, but perhaps not getting to know them. Do I just ignore people who are in a different age bracket? Or from a different ethnic or class background? 
or who make me uncomfortable because they're seriously ill. Or those of a different culture, the, the students versus working people versus unemployed. The families versus singles. Is there stuff there that we need to pray about and act on? Do I risk contributing to disunity by not knowing and loving the rest of the church properly? What about the murmuring? What are my pet gripes? What are the things that don't get done as I would wish? The things that bug me? How do I express them? What do I do about them? Is it useful or destructive? There's probably stuff there that we need to pray on. And pray for hearts that are changed, different to old, stubborn, Old Testament, grumbling Israel. Modelled on our Saviour instead. Second, distractions dangerous. So, consider your pastors and leaders. Do they look tired? Are they overloaded? Are they doing loads of stuff that is important, but not what their primary gifts are about? What do we do about that? As a church, do we need more paid staff to pick up that load? And if so, am I giving appropriately? Or is there stuff which could be done by us, by the church? And if so, where are the godly, spirit-obeying, wise Christians willing to serve in those contexts? How do we encourage them? Should it be me? Not necessarily, but we can be too busy. But there may be areas of ministry and church crying out for my input. And do I aspire to that, to humble service, or is it only the prominent stuff which would appeal to me? Again, there is probably stuff there that we need to pray on. And again, we need to be praying for changed hearts. Imitation of Christ. So, last question. Even to wait on tables, the apostles here wanted people who were known and recognised to be spirit-filled and wise, like Stephen and Philip. Do I fit the bill? The answer is no, probably. But am I growing in these areas? Am I praying about it? Or am I honestly satisfied with what I am and where I am now? Do I want, like Philip or or Stephen or these other guys, to be a picture of Jesus faithfully loving the church that he's given me? I'd imagine there'll be a, a lot of challenges there for each of us. So... In just a moment, Kitty's going to lead us in some songs of worship. And as we do that, let's be thinking and praying in our hearts, God, change and equip and use me for your church. So the word of God spreads. How will our church grow? Well, throughout the New Testament, this picture builds up. Every believer imitating their Lord and living in sacrificial service for all the others.